You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back to the program, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I'm coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan. But uh, you'll have to take my word for that, for those of you watching the video at home, because I have my uh, drapes closed against the uh, construction work that's going on outside. I mean, you literally... Actually, you can't see anything, so maybe that's a good thing. I'll get some light in here. It is a sunny day outside, but uh, here we are inside, and we're about to have a very interesting conversation again <coughs> tonight here on the program as we're going to talk to Niall Bowie, who listeners might be able to cast their mind back a few months now until the last time that Niall was on the program. And uh, for those of you who haven't heard Niall before, he is an American in Malaysia who is uh, affiliated with the Center for Research on Globalization at globalresearch.ca. He also has his own blog, niallbowie.blogspot.com, that will be linked up in the show notes for tonight's episode at corbettreport.com, where you can find his articles, analysis, and photography as well. So, Niall Bowie, it's great to have you here. Thank you uh, for joining us again today. Pleasure to come on the show, James. It's always great to talk. Well, to you. it is a pleasure to have you here, and we're going to get some more perspective on the uh, the Asian Pacific generally and uh, Malaysia specifically tonight. But before we dig into the hardcore geopolitical issues, let's just get some personal perspective on Malaysia and what brought you there and uh, why you're why you're based there. All right. Well, I originally came to Malaysia as part of a flight layover, uh, and I spent a couple days here. I really liked it. I had just left Australia, where I had been living at the time, and I was kind of looking for a new base. And uh, I had lived in Bangkok previously, but I found it to be a, a little too uh, too over the top just to stay in all the time to be to be too good of a base for me. So uh, I came to Malaysia. I really liked it. You know, coming from New York City, uh, you know what I could say is arguably one of the most ethnically diverse parts of the United States. Coming to Malaysia is uh, is is great for me because it's uh, it's the multicultural hub of Southeast Asia. You have uh, predominantly ethnic Malays, which constitute about 60% of the population who are religious and Muslim. Uh, the other 30% are Buddhist to Christian Chinese. And then the other 10% are of Hindu or Christian Indians. So in terms of the culinary situation here, that's, that's probably one of the reasons why I'm, I've really stuck. But, you know, it's a, it's a great country for that because you have such a diverse mosaic of different cultures in one place. Now, the question that everybody wants to know, how about the cuisine? <laughs> you know, uh, certainly so. I'm a big fan of Indian food, but you have your Chinese food. And one of the things I really tell everyone about Malaysia is that you can go into a restaurant and you can be, you really can feel like you're in China. Uh, and the, the, the cuisine is very authentic. And the same thing for, for Indian food. You also have the fourth largest, largest ethnic group in Malaysia right now are Iranians. So you have Persian restaurants, you know, and, and it's just a, uh, it's amazing to get so many things in one place in this part of Asia, and it's uh, it's just very comfortable to live here. Really enjoy. Well, it. it is an interesting mixture of uh, cultures, and I'm looking forward to visiting there someday. So, so hopefully, I will be there in person to uh, to experience that with you. But uh, in the meantime, you can be the guy on the couch. <laughs> awesome. Well, in the meantime, it is a uh, an important geopolitical center and becoming more so uh, as again the uh, the focus of, of so much world attention and and uh, the attention of the regions shifts to the Asia Pacific. So we're going to be getting into some of those issues uh, tonight on the program. <coughs> Excuse me, again, talking to Niall Bowie, nilbowie.blogspot.com, that's N-I-L-E-B-O-W-I-E. 
for those of you keeping track at home. So if you want to play along, please go there. He's also on Twitter, at Niall Bowie. And on that note, the uh, the phone lines and the Twitter lines will be open tonight. So if you want to phone in uh, on tonight's conversation, 1-800-313-9443. Or you can tweet me on air, at Corbett Report, and I'll get to your question and or comment here on air. But on that note, we're coming up right against our first break. So let's take a short breather, and we'll be back with Niall Bowie talking about Malaysia, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and uh, many, many other aspects of what's happening in the region besides. So stay tuned right there. We'll be right back. All right, friends, welcome back to the program. You are tuned into Corbett Report Radio, and for those keeping track at home, yes, this is the 205th original broadcast of Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting. So thank you once again for your mind time this evening and tuning in instead of dropping out. And tonight we are talking to Niall Bowie of nilbowie.blogspot.com, and we're going to turn our eye to Malaysia and what is happening there and how that ties into what's happening in the Asia-Pacific region generally. And there's an awful lot to talk about with regards to this, but Niall, tonight I wanted to start by talking about the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is something that has flown under the radar to a large extent for, I think, many Americans, but is something that is of a great concern and a great uh, import to a lot of people in this Asia-Pacific region. First, let's start talking about what this TPP is and then what Malaysia's role in it is. Sure. Well, <clears throat> I think it's the most alarming uh, alarming uh, threat to Malaysia right now. Uh, now, the TTP is, a, is basically what's dis- disguised as a, as a free trade deal. It's essentially uh, what I, I feel is the corporate usurpation uh, of, of you know, rights and privileges that uh, that really put uh, uh, that undermine national governments in many ways. And uh, what what this TTP uh, agreement is, it's it's been uh, negotiated in secret, uh, and it's been organized by over 600 uh, multinational corporations. Members of the U.S. Congress have complained because they've not been able to. Uh, View the negotiated uh, the negotiation drafts and the draft texts. And if we look at other free trade agreements like the FTAA, the Free Trade Area of the Americas, uh, that was after two years of negotiations, all, all the, the text was made available. Uh, but here we are uh, with almost three years now into the negotiations of the TTP. We've not seen anything. We do have a couple leaks, which I'll talk about in a second, but uh, from the research I've done, the, the agreement is not to release any information about the TTP until four years after the negotiation ended in October 2013. So uh, this is quite insane. And I think if we look at uh, what comes with this, there are basically the Hollywood uh, copyright cartels are really benefiting here. What we see is the uh, there, there's, there's been a leaked chapter on investment uh, that's, that's come out. And this has... Uh, this has contained a lot of uh, really interesting information. Now, if we look at the 1997-1998 Asian financial crisis, uh, Malaysia was a country that that uh, recovered quickly than the other countries because they employed protectionist economic policies against the Malaysian ringgit, which is the under Mahathir Mohamed. Uh, and what we have here under the TTP that will ban any kind of capital controls. So. Malaysia would have no means to shield itself against any sort of uh, uh, financial uh, manipulation, currency speculation, derivatives, trade. So it's, it's, it's very alarming. 
And it is, as you say, another subsumption of national sovereignty masquerading as a trade deal, which I think American listeners will be all too familiar with, with NAFTA and uh, GATT and the World Trade Organization generally doing this type of work. So once again, we have this regional deal that's uh, that's really threatening to undermine a lot of uh, national sovereignty. So what is Malaysia's role in this, and what what uh, what is the general feeling in Malaysia about this agreement? Well, the thing is, in Malaysia, this, this is not known at all. It's much like the United States. Now, since Mahathir's time, uh, who uh, the, the former prime minister who was in power for 22 years, he, uh, he transformed the Malaysian economy from an agricultural economy to a, you know, a country that's producing cars and automobiles and, and uh, you know, heavy industry and manufacturing. So uh, the downside to his rule is he, he was known to be an authoritarian. So uh, uh, media was not liberalized. Uh, dissent was generally dealt with pretty harshly. Uh, now, what we have now, we have media becoming more and more liberalized under the current prime minister, Najib Raza. But Mahathir himself, is a frequent blogger, he has warned that the current prime minister, Najib Razak, has been targeted for regime change uh, by the United States. And that is uh, something that I've covered pretty extensively, and that's done through a, a various uh, array of different ways, which we'll discuss throughout this conversation. But what I can tell is that uh, based on what Najib has done in power, uh, signing the TTP would be, you know, uh, would undermine what he's working towards, you know, and, and uh, I think I think what it looks like, there are many uh, Malaysian uh, analysts who, who share this view, uh, as do I, and I, I feel that uh, perhaps Najib is seemingly endorsing this, this Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, because he fears you know, uh, uh, that the opposition would be more attractive to the United States and multinational corporations. So it could be a, a means of self-preservation, uh, but I don't see how any self-respecting leader of a developing nation uh, uh, certainly can agree to the, the terms and stipulations of the Trans-Pacific Partnership based on what we know. Again, you know, we don't know what's in it, you know, so that this is what makes it really alarming. Uh, but certainly, if we look at what the TTP, uh, uh, basically what you'll get are arbitrary tribunals. Uh, so multinational corporations can sue, let's just say the Malaysian government, for example, if it feels its investments are harmed in any way by the national uh, you know, policy. So this is, uh, what measure of sovereignty is that? That makes absolutely no sense to me. And, uh, you know, I've been very busy with different projects, and I haven't had enough time to really look into this uh, as much as I would like to. But, you know, preparing for this conversation was really an eye-opener for me because, you know, uh, I plan to be based in Malaysia for a long time, and I think this is really something that I want to, um, you know, really put out there and, and, and publicize in the Malaysian press. Because more people really need to be aware of this. They certainly do, and there are a lot of different ramifications to this. You mentioned the Hollywood uh, industry and the copyright uh, infringement that is presumably built into this agreement, but there's also a patent infringement which is uh, going to be dealt with in this. And we have this from webpronews.com. I'm not sure what kind of source this is, but it says uh, Malaysia Health Minister says TPP is no good. And it reports uh, TPP is a major cause of concern among those in the tech community. Its expansion of copyright and forcing U.S. copyright law onto other countries is troubling to say the least. It seems that some countries involved in the TPP negotiations are beginning to come to their senses. Malaysia is the latest to say no to the treaty. And it says Malaysia Health Minister Datuk Siri Liao Chong Li, 
Lai, sorry, I have no idea how to pronounce that, recently spoke out against, <laughs> thank you, recently spoke out against TPP and its patent extensions on medicine. He feels that the U.S. is putting other country citizens at risk by making them adopt stricter patent laws. Here's his statement. We are against the patent extension. According to the agreement, if a medicine is launched in the U.S. and then three years later it is launched in Malaysia, the patent would start from when it, when it is launched here and not when it was launched earlier in the U.S. That is not fair. So that's an interesting comment coming from the, uh, the, the health minister there in Malaysia, and it's being reported as Malaysia saying no to TPP. But unless I'm reading this incorrectly, I, I don't think that's a definitive no. I think that's just one, yes. one person in the government expressing that's, that's, one concern. Uh, Internal dissent, uh, you know, within the government, which I think, you know, I, I really welcome that. We need more people within the Malaysian government who are recognizing that uh, this this uh, agreement uh, completely undermines the government, and it it doesn't help anyone in Malaysia. What about the Malaysian farmer? You know, what about the uh, the, the rice producing industry? What happens if you know you have all of these cheap uh, foreign produce and, and fruits and things like come into the flood the market? I mean, it, it'll be a disaster for Malaysia completely. Uh, it will. So let's let's look at that uh, that the makeup of the Malaysian government. Then, so for people who don't know, it's a, it's a parliamentary system with a prime minister. Is it based on a British parliamentary system? I believe it is. Yes. Uh, now, the Malaysian situation is pretty interesting right now because uh, it's it's complex, and we're approaching a, a very pivotal election here. So, are we approaching commercial break? Uh, we've got about three minutes. Okay, so we can just go into and discuss. It. So we know that. We're seeing the United States start militarily shifting its, uh, its uh, naval arsenal to this side of the world, to the Asia-Pacific region, and uh, we know the policy shift to the, the Asia-Pacific region. So what we're seeing now, I believe, is um, the U.S. attempting to use soft power uh, to bring about compliant heads of state that will uh, agree to these kinds of uh, uh, very oppressive uh, trade agreements that will agree to things like uh, military bases, uh, I'm not saying that Anwar Ibrahim, who's the main opposition leader, would do that at least right away, uh, but I think there's certainly a case for it that can be argued. So w- right now what we're seeing is, is this very pivotal moment in Malaysian history because we've had uh, we have the main party, uh, the Barsan National Party, who's been in power basically for uh, since the independence 55 years ago here in Malaysia. Uh, and that government has uh, has certainly... Demographics of the population are very loyal to it, specifically the ethnic Malays. Uh, the, the middle class and specifically the minorities, I would say about one-third of the country, though, uh, really, really uh, are, are very interested in the idea, the prospect of, 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 of regime change and, and uh, putting in a new government into power there in Putrajaya. However, I believe we'll, you can discuss this in greater detail. Uh, there's so much disunity uh, uh, with within the opposition uh, and and their economic model, I think does not does not suffice and cannot stand up to what what Barisan National, the current government, is doing. So, I think um, I think this is a very interesting situation that we're coming to. But we're seeing the National Endowment for Democracy. We're seeing the International Republican Institute outright training members of the opposition and focusing their attention on these states where the Malaysian opposition uh, is captured. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit later when we come back from the break about Bursay as well, which is uh, the Malaysian brand of color revolutions that we've had uh, twice over the past uh, several months. So we'll talk uh, about that. And uh, there's there's many very alarming cases of foreign funding uh, to these types of institutions. Uh, so 
all of this uh, we have to look at. And also we have to look at the, uh, the situation between the former government, Mahathir's government, whose statements are basically covered by the press as if he's the prime minister as well. I mean, his opinion is very valued here. Uh, look at the things he's doing, the things like the war crimes tribunal and whatever, and we'll look at the current government as well and seeing uh, where they're going diplomatically and how they're attempting to engage the American business community and sort of a, uh, establish closer ties with the United States, maybe for self-preservation. All right. Well, when the NED is involved, can uh, phony staged color revolution be far behind? Uh, very interesting and unfortunately uh, uh, not necessarily interesting in a positive sense for the Malaysians. But uh, but at any rate, it's something that we'll have to definitely keep our eye on. So let's go to break. And when we come back, we'll continue talking about some of these issues and some of the characters that are behind this opposition in Malaysia right now. Once again, talking to Niall Bowie, niallbowie.blogspot.com. Let's take a short break and we'll be right back. All right, welcome back to the program, friends. You are tuned into Corporate Report Radio. Tonight we are talking to Niall Bowie of niallbowie.blogspot.com about Malaysia, where he is currently based and uh, living and uh, and keeping an eye on a lot of the different politics that are going on in the region generally, but of course in Malaysia specifically. And there, just before the break, we started to get into some of the nefarious activities that are taking place behind the scenes in Malaysian politics to prop up the uh, the opposition including the specter of the National Endowment for Democracy, which I'm sure many of the listeners out there will have heard about before. But uh, let's go a little bit more into the in-depth into what is taking place right now in terms of the creation of this opposition. Sure. Well, um, we, have, we have the local brand of color revolution, which is uh, the Bursay movement, which in Malay translates to clean. It's the Coalition, coalition for Clean and Fair Elections. Now, uh, I went to, uh, there were three rallies that, that Bursay held, uh, one in 2007, uh, one in 2011, and one in 2012. The latter two, I, uh, I went and photographed, and you can see those, uh, those photographs on my, on my blog, uh, in addition to uh, reports uh, on, on what I saw. So uh, this is a, an organization that has marketed itself on free and fair elections. Uh, had, has, uh, it has given itself an apolitical standing, which uh, which we know not to be true. Uh, you can see in the photographs that I've taken. Uh, you know, the organization, for example, has claimed that uh, the opposition is in no way affiliated with this movement, and this movement is devoid of politics. It is just electoral reform to clean the system up. Uh, but you'll see in the photographs that I've taken that there are clearly protesters holding up photographs of Anwar Ibrahim, who's the main uh, opposition leader, with the Bursay logo. I mean, it's a direct endorsement. Uh, and also we've seen some other photographs that I've taken uh, where demonstrators had inverted portraits of the current prime minister. So there's no doubt that there is a very political component to uh, the, the rallies, uh, regardless of whatever kind of propaganda the, uh, the leadership of the Bursay coalition uh, discussed. So uh, Bursay is significant primarily because the leader uh, of the organization, Ambigashri Lassan, who's a, a very prominent Malaysian lawyer and women's rights, rights activist, uh, she has admitted to the Malaysian Insider that she's received funding from two organizations, the uh, National Endowment for Democracy and the uh, OSI, the George Soros Open Society Institute. Now, we don't know how much, we don't know where it went, uh, but she's just admitted that she's received this, this money so, uh, from, from these organizations. So if we look at the National Endowment for Democracy's website, for example, 
we see that the organization is funding one of Malaysia's most prominent pro-opposition news outlets. That's Malaysia Kini. And that, that news outlet was started, I think, in the, a couple of years ago. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure when, so I won't give you a date. But it was started with a grant from the U.S. State Department-funded Southeast Asian Press Alliance, of which Hillary Clinton uh, is the chairperson. Uh, so uh, that is the most prominent, one of the most prominent sources of Malaysian news, but also uh, the most prominent pro-opposition uh, uh, source. So we've got uh, also SARAM, which is a, a human rights organization, which has really gone after the government for uh, cases of police misconduct, which I admit like, that, that, that is legitimate to some extent. Um, but we see most predominantly, we see the International Republican Institute, which is chaired by John McCain, receiving uh, over $800,000 per year for their Malaysia projects, which include, uh, very specifically on their website, they mention uh, training members of the government, uh, you know, in terms of public speaking and, and uh, uh, coming up with policy uh, and, and, you know, various forms of propaganda. And there's a very specific emphasis on two regions, which is Penang and Selangor. Now, these two regions are very significant because Penang is one of the, the regions controlled by the Democratic Action Party, one of the uh, three political parties that make up Pakatan Rakyat, which is the uh, opposition coalition. And Selangor, which is arguably the most important kind of uh, economic uh, area of Malaysia on the, the Malaysian Peninsula here, uh, that is run by uh, Anwar Ibrahim's PKR party. Uh, so these are very significant. So for me, when... When Bernstein is coming out under this umbrella of free and fair elections, it, I think this this is a red herring issue at the end of the day because the opposition conforce, uh, controls four states, uh, and and I think if if the uh, if the electoral system was was so uh, you know skewed and, and uh, favoring the the current ruling government, they'd be in control of those states. So I think this is really a red herring issue at the end of the day, and it. It, the model looks very similar to what we saw a couple months ago in Russia with Putin's re-election, with Golos, the electoral uh, uh, commission there, where basically you had uh, all of this artificial hysteria coming out of uh, what I see as very manipulated reports of uh, electoral fraud that have no real basis. And, and that caused some issues for the Putin government. And, and uh, without getting too much into Russia, this is what it really resembles. Uh, so this is what we're seeing, and um, this organization, Bursay, is uh, is marketed very well because when Al Jazeera reports on it and and, and what have you, uh, they can hide under the umbrella of being apolitical and just wanting free and fair elections, you know. Uh, but actually, I think there's there's a lot more to it than that, uh, and I think this is a way to uh, leverage a kind of legitimacy away from the Malaysian government. But it does raise issues that you know uh, the the, the the average uh, rookie police officer who's beating you with a stick, you know, to the person who's getting that, that person is the state. And what it is, it's not the state that's, that's, that's corrupt. Unfortunately, unfortunately, yes. So we'll have to, to hold it there. We're coming up against a break. But uh, let's, let's regroup our thoughts and we'll come back to explore this uh, more fully after the break and some of the templates that are being used really to uh, to create these opposition movements not only in Malaysia but around the world so let's hold it right there we'll be right back here on Corbett Report Radio
Okay, we're back. So, Niall, let's continue talking about what we were talking about right before the break there, talking about some of the uh, the opposition that is using the, the cover of this apolitical group, so-called, to uh, to really rally uh, rally the troops, so to speak, against the, the current government. What is at stake here? Why are foreign forces at play? What do they have to gain from all of this? Okay, so... Um just before, uh, to touch on what I was speaking about before the break, I think a lot of Malaysians, because there were some cases of excessive police uh, uh, force uh, during the Bursay uh, uh, rallies when they were dispersing the demonstrators, a lot of Malaysians, and especially more moderates and people who just went there to see what was going on, uh, they they um, they were more radicalized, and, and uh, certainly uh, their feelings were, they felt alienated by the government, by the, the conduct of the police force, and uh, what I think uh, a lot of people, although they're well-meaning, they misinterpret this, uh, you know, as um, as a, a government government corruption. What I think it, it, it really calls for um, the public services, like the police force, to be looked at a little bit more closely. But anyway, uh, we'll go into um, what you just uh, asked me. So uh, there is a lot at stake here. So uh, Malaysia is extremely geographically important region. It's it's uh, the Strait of Malacca is one of the third. I think the third most uh, uh, the third busiest uh, uh, waterway in the world. Uh, a lot is at stake here, uh, primarily because this would be the first time there is such a political transition, and uh, the the political opposition uh, is is not unified in many of the the the, um, the directions they want to go in. So we have these three political parties that make up the opposition coalition, which is Pakistan Rakyat. We have the Islamic Party of Malaysia, which is an Islamist party, which holds two states in northern uh, Malaysia towards the Thai border. We've got the Democratic Action Party, which is a, a Chinese party, which controls Penang, which is predominantly Chinese. Uh, and we've also got uh, PKR, which is Anwar Ibrahim's party. Now, we know Anwar Ibrahim has uh, very close ties to Paul Wolfowitz. He used to work for uh, Dick Cheney's Foundation for the Future, uh, he used to work for the World Bank, uh, and he has generally criticized many of the protectionist economic policies of Mahathir that that pushed Malaysia, Malaysia forward and, and allowed them to recover from the uh, financial crisis in 1997. So, uh, what I think uh, the the benefits of the current government are is that they've been able to uh, consistently deliver economic growth, and that economic growth has always been very high. They've been very attractive uh, for foreign investment to come in. For example, the uh, Taiwanese government is investing $40 million into Johar Bahru, which is uh, the borders uh, town with Singapore. We've also got uh, the, the second quarter of the, uh, the uh, GDP coming in at 5.4, which is a very healthy, uh, healthy number, healthy uh, growth rates. We could see that go lower uh, if the uh, Malaysia is a very export-driven economy. If demand falls you know, in the United States and, and elsewhere, uh, then we could see the Malaysian economy slow down. But I think um, I think as of right now, the government has uh, you know done a lot in terms of the economic sphere. They have a, an economic transformation program that they're attempting to raise uh, the gross uh, national income to fifteen thousand U.S. dollars uh, per per year uh, per person. That would be a high income nation, and the statistics show that they're on uh, on the, the road to actually accomplishing that by twenty twenty. Uh, so the thing is with the opposition. The, there's no unity among them because they want to go in certain different directions. For example, the Islamist party, which controls Kelatan in the north and Kedah, uh, they essentially they want to found an Islamic state in Malaysia. Now, the government uh, is based on a philosophy of Islamic, uh, it's more moderate, 
certainly, and certainly more secular. Malaysia must exist as, as a secular state, but what the PAS, which is the Islamist Party, want to do is uh, arguably they want to impose a brand of Sharia law on non-Muslims, which constitute you know around forty percent of the population, which which is really not fair, and I think that really represents a detrimental uh, direction. And for example, when I was up in in Kedah a couple months ago, a friend and I were just at a bar, and uh, the moral police came in, you know, in, in a uh, Islamic police, and they were searching for people, Malays, ethnic Malays. If you're Chinese, if you're Indian, whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, you can drink and you can enjoy. But if you're ethnically Malay, that means you're Muslim. So you should not be there. Uh, and if you're caught, you know, you'll be arrested and fined. So uh, this is really, I think, represents something very regressive. Uh, and um, uh, generally, there is not a very stable economic platform with the opposition. But I think if the opposition did come to power, I don't think it's likely, but I think if they did, they would uh, you know, go about changing Malaysia's foreign policy in many, uh, many subtle ways. Uh, and, you know, Anwar Ibrahim a couple months ago uh, made very interesting statements, uh, you know, supporting the, def- the uh, security of Israel. Uh, so this is, uh, maybe people don't know, but uh, Israel, uh, Israelis are banned from Malaysia. Uh, there is no diplomatic relations established between Israel and Malaysia. And for the opposition leader to make a statement like that, especially when one you know, party of the opposition coalition is an Islamist party that wants to, uh, you know, is pro-Palestine. And it, it just doesn't seem like there's any unity there. And I don't see how the, the, the opposition could coherently run the country. It doesn't make sense to me. Perhaps that's the point, as we've seen in a lot of other um, foreign-funded opposition groups in other countries. Perhaps the point is the destabilization itself and to make sure that no coherent uh, opposition can come to power and rule over the entire country. Well, I think that's that's very plausible. And as well, um, I was talking to Eric Drakeser about this. I was telling him about the situation. And um, basically, I told him, you know, I thought it was strange that the Islamist Party was not getting any funding directly from the National Endowment for Democracy or the International Republic Institute. And I figured, well, maybe uh, maybe they're trying to divert away from this Islamic, Islamist influence. Uh, Eric said, well, it's likely that they, they refused it. You know, their, their agenda is, is, is their own. Uh, so I think that that's very plausible as well. So it's a very interesting uh, direction, and, and many things are at stake. Now, cab driver broke this down for me, and it made a lot of sense. He said, uh, you know, I think the, the next election we're going to get the, the current government to come back because you have the, the rich people who benefit from the government in power. You have the poor who receive subsidies and kind of a affirmative action uh, policies for the Malays that, you know, uh, they're loyal to the government for that reason. The middle class, the people who are... Um, the minorities and involved in the economic sector, they're seeking a change. But uh, I, I really, um, I think that they they support the opposition very blindly without really understanding the larger ramifications uh, and, at, and not even looking at the policy of the opposition so much. Because I think if they did, they, they would probably just abstain from voting completely. Well, let's, let's shift gears slightly then. Let's take a look at some of the, the foreign policy of the, the current Malaysian government and the direction that that's heading. You mentioned the opposition even expressing perhaps uh, some sort of uh, guarded concern for Israel and, and perhaps attempts to establish relations or whatever, but that, that doesn't seem to be much on the, on the table. But let's talk about some of the things that are happening right now in the region generally. You've talked about the geography of Malaysia and why it's so important um, geostrategically, and it is right there on the on the southern edge of the South China Sea, which of course is making headlines around the world now for being a, a part of the the whole imbroglio between China and Vietnam, China and the Philippines. Malaysia is on the southern edge of the, the South China Sea there. So let's talk about the South China Sea and how that plays into Malaysia's foreign policy. 
Sure. Well, uh, Malaysia, I think, has less of a stake in the South China Sea than Vietnam and the Philippines. But I think, I think even with looking at these uh, these two countries uh, involved, uh, Vietnam and the Philippines, I think there there are there is so much trade and partnership with China, uh, and these are basically I think it's in the interest of every government there to uh, you know openly trade uh, with each other. And uh, I think even though the issue of the South China Sea, as important as it is, and, you know, the, the potential for that conflict to become militarized does exist, you know, we can't downplay that. But I think uh, economic growth is very important to the Chinese government. And at the end of the day, the Chinese government knows that if they cannot continue economic growth and delivering that, then they will lose their legitimacy. So their main priority is to uh, establish friendly, friendly relations. Uh, but they're being certainly more assertive than, than I, I would have thought uh, on this issue of the South China Sea. Now, uh, as I mentioned before, I've been really busy with other projects, so I didn't really get the time to look and, and to see how much Malaysia, Malaysia plays into it, but in the local media, there's not a whole lot uh, of issues about it. But if we look at foreign policy in general, let's just say, like, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen Anwar Ibrahim. He's done an interview with Julian Assange on his program on Russia Today, which he made the really absurd statement of comparing Malaysia to Myanmar and saying that Myanmar had more of a democratic uh, framework, which is, you know, obviously a very, uh, very dubious statement. Uh, but if the opposition leader in Malaysia, if he comes to power and he's making this statement, these kind of uh, very undiplomatic statements about Myanmar, the neighboring country, of which you know mutually beneficial economic development could be very beneficial for both nations, uh, if he's making these kinds of uh, very arbitrary statements about the government in Myanmar, there, I don't think that's a good signif- uh, signification of, of what uh, what an Anwar Ibrahim government would look like. But currently. We see under Mahathir, uh, you know, Malaysia was looking east. Malaysia was concerned more with the Beijing consensus. And that has existed to some extent under Najib Raza. Uh, all, all, Malaysia and Singapore are the, are the two leading trading partners. But the United States does a lot of trade with Malaysia as well. And generally, the, the line of the current government is to, uh, although I, I, I'm very much sure that within the current government, uh, many uh, ministers are concerned with uh, issues of imperialism and issues like the TTP, I think the the the, the, uh, the um, Najib government has has done a lot to you know uh, create cozier relations with the United States and the American business community, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but I think um, I'm disappointed that the Malaysian government has not taken a stronger stance on issues like Syria. Uh, you know, the Malaysian government has uh, the foreign ministry has voted uh, with the United States and with the uh, the Gulf. Uh, countries with respect to Syria, which was very disappointing, especially when you have Mahathir and other um, more vocal uh, uh, analysts here in Malaysia who were calling that situation for what it is. So it's it's very hard to call right now. You know, uh, seeing where the Malaysian government is, it's it's not as a you know a vocal, it's not as anti-imperialist as the Mahathir government was. Uh, and I think again, a lot of this comes to uh, self-preservation because. Uh, Mahath, uh, Najib must realize that that uh, Anwar Ibrahim would be uh, would be a more desirable candidate in ter- for for what Washington wants the Washington Washington consensus in this part of the world and particularly the Republican consensus and the people who are allied more closely with Romney. So uh, all of this is very troubling. It is indeed. Well, I've been asking you questions, but what what else are you working on? What what do you want to bring to people's attention? Okay. Well. Um, Right now, over the past three months, I've been working on a book uh, with uh, Tony Cartolucci of Land Destroyer Report. We've uh, we've basically just finished the manuscript. It's a book on Syria, and it's looking at the entire uh, conflict of Syria for the past 18 months that we've had. Um, 
And uh, I can't really give too many more details about that, but it will be uh, it will be available for uh, for download and for purchase shortly. Uh, we're still working out some of the minor details with that book, uh, uh, but we'll start pushing it soon. But basically, that has been what I've been kind of involved in and completely enveloped in over the past three months. I haven't really, if you've looked at my blog, I don't really have many uh, articles that I've been doing, many uh, a, a lot of research that I've wanted to do. I haven't been able to do just the occasional RT interview here and there. But um, but I'm certainly looking forward to getting back into uh, all these things, and uh, I'll be going to Iran next month. I'll be in uh, Tehran for a little bit more than two weeks. I'll also be visiting Lebanon, and if conditions uh, allow, and if I'm granted a visa, I will visit Damascus as well to see what the situation is like on the ground. Uh, so uh, all of these will be very interesting, and I hope uh, I hope to put out a lot of work uh, over the coming months with respect to this trip and what kind of photography I can get out of it and what kind of a you know a, just. Interesting observations I can take from the whole thing. It should be very true. It must be absolutely fascinating. I'm very much looking forward to seeing what you can uh, get out of that trip. But uh, let's just talk a little bit about Syria then, since you've been working on it. Uh, what What is your take on, on some of the latest developments, and where do you think this is going? Well, we see uh, the, the government helicopter or some kind, of, um, some kind of aircraft that was shot down over Damascus yesterday. I don't know if it was shot down, if it was a technical error, but I think, um, I think from, from the... What I've been covering, you know, uh, the fighting has been pre- predominantly in Aleppo, in northern Syria. And uh, the idea of, you know, uh, opposition men getting in, you know, uh, rebels, whatever you want to call them, it's a better term for opposition men. But, but uh, we have rebels taking in, let's just say if they have RPGs and they're getting those into Damascus to shoot down helicopters, I think it's really worrying. But, you know, we're seeing more and more desperation uh, from outlets like uh, the Foreign Policy and even the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, some of their pundits have been coming out with the most absurd uh, articles. There was literally an article that came out a couple of days in Foreign Policy, two cheers for Syrian Islamists. Uh, and this this is paradox for me because uh, following the situation, uh, foreign fighters, the use of foreign fighters, the use of Islamists uh, were basically um, were not admitted by the mainstream media. And now it's become so obvious that it's being embraced and it's being uh, marketed as a good thing. And that completely doesn't make any sense to me. Anyone with a basic understanding of uh, Syrian society and the uh, diverse kind of mosaic of, of cultures and, and religions, and this delicate balance that that, that uh, government in Syria has uh, basically worked to protect knows that, that sending Islamists in there and al-Qaeda fighters is a complete mistake. It's, it's a suicide policy. Again, the only thing that I can think of is, obviously, this is a deliberate attempt at destabilization and to make sure that no stable government can come to power in the region or or really anywhere in the world where it serves, I think, Western interests to to destabilize. Sure, and if we've seen the, the 2010 U.S. Special Forces Unconventional Warfare Manual, very, very interesting document, which basically lays out the phases of different destabilization. And in Syria, that is, that is a full insurgency movement. In Venezuela, you know, for example, we saw a color revolution with a little bit more of a, of a violent kind of a element to it, with snipers and whatever. Uh, here in Malaysia, we have a, a more basic, you know, it's just sort of dissident media and, and, and very kind of um, uh, non-aggressive, I guess, uh, we can say a, a color revolution movement, uh, a soft power destabilization, I can say, similar to what we have going on in Russia, but also if uh, also uh, we have more violent uh, issues going on in Russia uh, in the Dagestan region, which Eric Drakeser recently covered, uh, which which uh, was very interesting. Certainly. 
Absolutely. Well, uh, again, so much going on and so much uh, uh, in the pot, so to speak, that it's difficult to know uh, what to what to eat first. But uh, again, just a, a remarkable wealth of information at uh, nilebowie.blogspot.com. So much, so much going on, um, and uh, obviously months and months and months of uh, of articles that you've done in the past. Uh, just tell us uh, briefly about uh, some of the other work that you've done on on the region before. For example, your your interview with Dr. Chandra Muzaffar. Yes, Dr. Chandra Muzaffar, who's a um, he was he is a Malaysian a Malaysian scholar, and we uh, we sat down together. He does an NGO here. He runs an NGO called Just International Movement for a Just World, of which I'm a member. I've also contributed some of my articles to him, and he does a monthly publication. And uh, this movement that he's a part of, uh, this NGO, uh, attempts to blend, uh, uh, I guess we can call spirituality and, uh, and geopolitics and looking at these things in a very pragmatic way and, and uh, just essentially bringing a lot of these issues of, uh, of destabilization and imperialism and, and environmental issues and spiritual issues to, uh, to light. Uh, so he's, a, he's certainly a very fascinating man, and I would, I would recommend that. Uh, uh, anyone who's found this conversation interesting to get over to my blog or, or on Global Research, you can see uh, I did about a 40-minute interview with Dr. Muzavar, and uh, we touched on many, many issues. It's one of the, the most broad interviews that I've conducted. I mean, we're, we cover so many things. So uh, it's certainly uh, worth that's right, and it is at Global Research TV, grtv.ca. It's also at uh, linked up at nilebowie.blogspot.com. I hope people will check that out. Once again, coming up against a break, let's take a short breather, and we'll come back to finish up tonight's conversation with Niall Bowie. Turn it All right, friends, welcome back to the program. Here we are in the final minutes of tonight's edition of Corporate Report Radio. Once again, talking to Niall Bowie of nilebowie.blogspot.com. I hope you will check it out if you haven't yet done so. And in the final few minutes here, we don't have much time, but let's let's start talking a little bit about some of the uh, the social issues in Malaysia. And obviously, as you alluded to, some very interesting racial mix going on there, but it does, I'm sure, create create some tensions and some other uh, issues that can arise there. Tell us about social relations in Malaysia. Sure. Well, as I mentioned before, issues like the, P- the TPP, although very highly important, uh, they haven't really penetrated the public consciousness so much. And what what really is a, is a very strong issue here in Malaysia are religious issues and, and racial issues. And uh, what what I can see is the most common um, the common grievance with a lot of the members of the Chinese and the Indian minorities is what's called the new economic policy, which I believe was introduced under Mahathir. Not 100% on that. But basically what this does, this gives, it's affirmative action policy. So this gives preferential treatment to the members of the Islamic Malay ethnic group. So uh, what that does is it makes it easier for them to uh, uh, take loans. It makes it easier for them to have lower interest rates or no interest rates. Uh, It makes it easier for them to uh, go to public institutions and pay substantially less and, for example, a friend of mine told me she was just going to apply for a Malaysian license as an Indian girl, and uh, she had to pay uh, a bribe uh, to the driving school because she was not Malay. So uh, all of these things are very troubling, but I think, um, I think stepping back and looking at it uh, from just my experience growing up in New York City, uh, you know, in Jersey City, where we have areas of my hometown that are, you know, constantly having uh, race-related violence and, and different, uh, you know, uh, it's... It's comparatively harmonious compared to uh, to uh, many different places in the Western world. So uh, I don't think these issues are, are so serious. And I think among the uh, younger 
uh, Malaysian uh, class, there's there's a lot of integration, you know, racial integration. Uh, but I think uh, one of the issues here is that although uh, these people are living side by, by side here in the Malaysian <coughs> Peninsula, you never really see Malay people at a Chinese restaurant or vice versa. You know, it's it's uh, it's connected, but people aren't connecting. Uh, so um, this is changing more and more with the younger generation. But uh, what I think more and more is happening is that, uh, that minorities and even Malays themselves are saying that this new economic uh, policy, which which favors ethnic Malays, is outdated. Uh, it, it, it doesn't help Malays. Uh, it, it, it is very similar to the welfare situation in the United States, where um, where uh, that system is just not productive. Uh, so this is a uh, this is one of the main social issues here in Malaysia, and also we have things like the encroaching kind of a, a move to found an Islamic state, uh, which which a lot of uh, you know. Uh, non-religious or non-Muslims are, are very concerned about because uh, I think if, if that were to happen, if we were to have a, an Islam, Islamist state found in, uh, founded here in Malaysia or at least in a couple states, I think what would happen is you'd have a, an exodus of, of Chinese, uh, you know, ethnic Chinese. They would likely go back to China, and I think the same would follow suit, for, or they would go to Singapore. The same would follow suit for the for the Indian population. You know, uh, that would be what would happen if uh, we had uh, an Islamist government here in Malaysia. And I think that needs to be uh, avoided completely. This is just simply not fair. It doesn't represent the, the demographic of Malaysia. All right, now we're going to have to leave it right there. We are fresh out of time for this evening. So once again, let's direct people to your website, nilebowie.blogspot.com. Once again, that will be linked up in the show notes for tonight's episode at corporatereport.com slash radio. And on that note, we're going to have to leave it there. So, Niall, thank you so much again for your time tonight. It's been a very interesting conversation. Pleasure talking to you, James. All right, let's leave it there. And uh, for everyone listening at home, again, we have some interesting uh, broadcasts lined up for you this week, both conversations and some topics lined up for your participation as well. So I'm looking forward to coming to you once again tomorrow night, uh, 23 hours from now, same time, same channel. I hope you will stay tuned in for that. So until then, thank you all for listening and take care.